This is the Icelandic True Crimes Podcast, your weekly injection of Icelandic crime and mystery cases. I'm your host, Margaret Björs. Some of the episodes may feel disturbing for some listeners, so I advise you to skip ahead when needed. Also keep in mind that care and respect must be taken in discussion of sensitive cases. You can find additional information on each case under show notes on the website icelandictruecrimes.com. Let's dive in! In the last episode, part two of the brother murder, Juliana Silva had been sentenced to death for the murder of her brother Eilver, which became the last death sentence in Iceland. But what followed after, and what became of Juliana's daughters Margret and Silva Brynhildur, and what happened to Jón, whom Juliana had alleged was her accomplice in the crime, but instead was acquitted and placed inside a mental hospital. Let's deep dive in. On April 6th, 1915, the Reykjavik city sheriff, Jón Magnusson, received a letter from the Supreme Court in Denmark, saying they had confirmed the National Court's decision to sentence Juliana Silva to death, but that the King of Denmark, Christian X, had amended her sentence on March 25th and decided to pardon Juliana, and in exchange, she'd receive life imprisonment and do prison work. The city sheriff Jón was to follow up on her punishment. Two days later, on April 8th, Juliana was notified of the Supreme Court's ruling, and she then told that the King of Denmark had pitied her, and therefore conditionally pardoned her. Juliana was to do her time in Reykjavik's prison, Hegningarhuset, and do prison work for life. Juliana's health deteriorated while she was in Hegningarhuset, and on January 20th, the year after, she had to be hospitalized in Landakotspitali due to her state of health. She was mentally unwell after the past events, and neurotic and arthritic. But Juliana was then discharged from the hospital on April 26th and brought back to the Hegningarhuset prison. During the summer on July 18th, Juliana had to be hospitalized again due to stomach pain. There, she stayed bedridden for a long time on the government's cost. When Juliana was suspected of having stomach cancer, she was operated on, but they found no cancer, nor what was wrong with her. Juliana was held under house arrest at Landakotspitali, as her state of health was bad in general, and she was not allowed to go outside the premises. She could sometimes be up on her feet when her health allowed her to, and then she helped out by mopping the floors of the hospital and assisting in the care of other patients, despite her poor health. Later, many citizens in Reykjavik spoke of remembering her as a good-natured woman of misfortune. They said they never felt scared of her, and that everyone had been very fond of her. Kind women living in the area near Lantakotspitali often slipped her a little something. She drank coffee with them, and thus snuck a little out of her demarcated area. 
In April 1918, Juliana had been hospitalized in Landekotspitale for 21 months. At that time, Margaret, the daughter of Juliana and Magnus, was 25 years old. A few years before, she had married Sigurbjörn and had a son with him, but then divorced him later. Margaret lived with her son in Bergstaðstræti, number 44, the house owned by Juliana's former partner, Hannes Hansson. Hannes had always been good to Margaret, and she could always consult with him. She was very concerned with her mother, who had been ill for so long. And so, on April 15, 1918, she wrote a letter to the government offices in Iceland. Your Excellency, I hereby allow myself, with the utmost reverence, on behalf of my absent siblings, to ask the high-powered government offices of Iceland to mercifully consider that our mother, Juliana Jónsdóttir, who has become very distressed on soul and body and is now hospitalized at Landakotspitali in Reykjavík, to be pardoned by our king, that is, that she will be given of what remains, enforcement of the sentence she received a few years back by the jurisdiction, in full trust in thy, and respectfully, Margaret Magnusdóttir. The year 1918 was an eventful year in Iceland's history. It began with the second great frost on January 5th, as a great storm hit from the north with frost and heavy snowing. Sea ice froze up in the country's shores so shipping lanes became icebound, and Breidafjörður and Faxaflóe on the west shores became so frozen that people could walk on the ice from Reykjavík to the islands around. On January 11th, polar bears came on land with sea ice floating from Greenland, and then the next days after, more polar bears came on land, and at least seven of them were killed. On January 21st, the greatest frost was measured in Reykjavik, or minus 26 degrees Celsius, and with that, water and heating pipelines cracked. There was a lot of frost in the ground, which reached under the support foundations of houses, and some of them even lifted up. When the houses expanded like that, the chimneys either came off the roofs or cracked. The day after, the greatest frost of the winter was measured in Grimstadir, located in the highlands north of the glacier Vatnajökull, minus 37.9 degrees Celsius, and widely elsewhere in the country, it went below minus 30 degrees Celsius. Cold shortages became so widespread in the country that it was difficult to warm up houses, and there was lack of food, as it was not possible to fish, due to the sea icing up ashore and product scarcity in stores. Examples were found of people suffering frostbite on their feet and face when going outdoors. In the fall, on October 12th, the volcano Katla erupted in Myrdalsjökull glacier, and the glacial outburst with icebergs flooded the Myrdalsandur area. By then, Katla hadn't erupted for 58 years, whereas Katla is believed to erupt every 60 to 80 years, and therefore, Icelanders today anticipate when it will erupt next. There was an extensive volcanic asphalt in the area closest to Katla, which caused damage to pastures, 
a lot of farms were destroyed, and livestock got killed. The eruptive spout could be seen from almost all of Iceland. Now, in the year 2020, it's been 102 years since Katla's last eruption. In July of that same year, a mild influenza passed through the country. Later, when the head of state and the director general of public health in Iceland got news of an influenza outbreak in Europe and beyond, they didn't react. However, on October 19th, two ships came to Iceland. Botnia from Copenhagen in Denmark and Wilmos from New York and on board were people infected with the influenza. It is believed that shortly afterwards there were also infected people aboard the trawler Víðir, coming from England to the town of Hafnarfjörður. The Reykjavík district doctor, Jón Hjaltarín Sigurðsson, asked the head of state how they should respond to this influenza coming to Iceland. Jón Magnusson, who had previously been the city sheriff of Reykjavík and was a member of the judiciary in Juliana's hearing and trials, had a year before become the first prime minister of Iceland when his three-man government took power. The prime minister Jón and the director general of public health, Guðmundur Björnsson, decided to sit about the influenza coming the second time, since they believed it had already arrived during the summer and hadn't been that serious. But what they did not realize was that in the summer, the first and milder outbreak of the Spanish flu had gone around Iceland. Now, the second outbreak had hit, and this time, it was way more dangerous. The Spanish flu virus originated in China the year before, back in 1917, but got its name because the virus spread to Europe from Spain. The Spanish flu spread across the country. A great deal of panic took hold when people began to become sick. And on November 2nd, a large proportion of Reykjavik citizens had become bedbound, or about 80 people. Four days later, half of the Reykjavik population was bedridden. Then, when the First World War ended on November 11th and was celebrated throughout the world, Flags fluttered half-mast throughout Reykjavik city on account of the wires. The Spanish flu would then slay more people around Europe than the First World War, which had begun four years earlier on July 28, 1914. It is believed that 500 million people became infected of the Spanish flu, or one-third of the world's population and estimated that a total of 50 million died worldwide. During the Spanish flu, Margaret, Juliana's elder daughter, became seriously ill by the virus. Juliana was by then still hospitalized in Landakotspitali, and on November 14th, she wrote a letter to the government offices. Honorable government, in my dire agony and the weakened life of my daughter, in which she lies helpless on death's doorstep. Please allow me in the name of God to save her life, if possible, by promising me to go to her and dry her last drops of sweat. You have the power to do whatever you please with me when she's breathed her last breath. I come to you for the last time and pray in the name of the Lord. Finally, I hope for an answer as soon as possible. 
God Almighty, free from this terrible plague, which now progresses. I am your poor prisoner, Juliana. Some of those who became sick and bedridden were unable to seek help. And so, when an aid committee was founded, it began to go house to house throughout the city. Many of those visited had become so ill from the virus that they were more dead than alive from cold and hunger. The children's school in Reykjavik, Bartnoskolen, was set up as a hospital for those who were infected by the Spanish flu. Thordur Toratsen was made the senior physician of the hospital. His namesake was Thordur Jonsson, the senior psychiatrist of the mental hospital Klepper, and the one who performed Juliana's mental health assessment after her arrest. Thordur the psychiatrist was thought of as controversial for his work and known for applying his own version of hydrotherapy to his patients in Klepper, which comprised in giving the patients a lot of water to drink to overcome whatever disorder they were dealing with. He had developed that method himself, and Thordur Toratsen, the senior physician, also applied that method to his patients who were hospitalized due to the Spanish flu. He made them lie naked in their beds, and the radiators in the rooms were heated up as much as possible, and to begin with, he had them starve and drink lots of boiled down water. However, several patients received both medicine and a relieving diet. The Spanish flu affected Reykjavik city the most, as thousands got infected, or approximately 75% of its population, and 520 to 40 people lost their lives throughout the country, or about 5.7% of the nation. When the Prime Minister Jón and Guðmundur, the Director General of Public Health, realized the severity of the virus, they seized a strict quarantine action, which involved reduced transportation in infected areas and isolation of people and objects suspected of carrying the disease. As a result, nobody got infected in the north and east parts of Iceland during the outbreak. The Spanish flu mostly affected people who were in the prime of their life, but the middle-aged and the elderly did not seem to be as susceptible to the virus, and children escaped the virus surprisingly well. Icelanders had to watch their loved ones' corpses stiffen up and turn blue in their cold and cramped homes, with the corpses lying in the next bed to them for days and even weeks of time. No coffins were available, and all woodworkers had become infected by the virus, so the corpses often had to stand up to 15 days before a coffin could be built. It was not possible to move the corpses to the mortuary in Hólavallagarður cemetery, which had become full. About 300 of those who died during the Spanish flu were buried in the Hólavallagarður cemetery, and the priests could barely keep up with all the funerals and burials. Those who attended their loved ones' funerals to accompany them to their grave became hypothermic and relapsed. On November 21st and 22nd, 24 people were buried in two separate mass graves in Hólavallagarður cemetery. Six of them were buried in one grave, and the other 18 people, which had all been transferred to the mortuary, were buried in the other grave, without knowing the names of some of them. 
those who died during the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918 were buried in plots labeled A and B in Holavatakarður. On December 1st, that fateful year, the Danish kingdom agreed to Iceland's independence, and therefore on that day, the sovereignty of Iceland was celebrated in the shadow of death. The third and final outbreak of the Spanish flu circulated in March 1919, and again the Icelandic government failed to cease quarantine actions, since at first they thought it was a common influenza. This time, in particular, the Spanish flu mostly affected children and those who had escaped the previous two outbreaks, and had therefore not formed immunity to the virus. However, on April 8, 1919, Juliana was discharged from Lantakotspitale Hospital after being hospitalized for two years and nine months and brought back to the Hackningarhuset prison. A few months later, on July 11th, the district doctor, Jon Hjaltalin Sigurdsson, wrote a letter to the government offices. Juliana Silva Jonsdóttir, a lifer in Hackningarhuset prison in Reykjavík, has been in very poor health since her arrest on November 15, in 1913. Early during her custody, a gastrointestinal problem soon emerged, an intense neurosis, and her menstruation became very irregular, painful, and particularly severe. Her health deteriorated, and on January 20th, in 1916, she had to be hospitalized until April 26th of that same year, she had then been feeling a little better, but in low spirits. Her health soon declined as she couldn't tolerate the prison food and threw up almost anything she ate. She had severe pain in her stomach. Her stools were irregular. Her menstruation, as before mentioned, and she either slept little or none for long periods. She lost a lot of weight and therefore it was necessary to hospitalize her again on July 18th that same year. In my absence, in August 1916, she was operated on due to suspicion of stomach cancer. However, it turned out she did not have cancer. She was then bedridden for a very long time and her state of health was terrible, but for the past one and a half year she has improved slightly and is now up on her feet at the hospital, and provides a little help now and then when her health allows. But she's still in poor health. Her appetite is low, and she must be on a special diet. But despite that, she often feels nauseated, vomits, and has pain under her chest area. So for the past quarter of the year, she's had to stop eating in the evenings, as well as being severely neurotic and arthritic so her arms and hands swell up, accompanied by severe pain. This woman suffers from three diseases. Chronic gastroenteritis, or irritable bowel syndrome, neurosis, and arthritis. There is no doubt that Juliana's health will rapidly deteriorate as soon as he's back in the prison. Jón Hjaltalin Sigurdsson, the district doctor. Jón, the district doctor, was the one who attended Juliana's brother Eyjolfur on his deathbed after she had poisoned him. After Eyjolfur's death, Jón, the district doctor, attended Juliana when her health declined, 
and could therefore see that Juliana was not able to endure more of her imprisonment and sought out for her sentence being pardoned. Juliana wrote a letter to the King of Denmark in which she applied for her penalty to be capitulated. To the King I, the undersigned Juliana Silva Jonsdottir, whom by the Supreme Court's ruling was sentenced to death, but then by a royal decree dated March 25, 1915, conditionally pardoned to undergo lifelong imprisonment and do prison work, hereby courteously allow myself to apply for that penalty to be capitulated. I am now close to 60 years of age, worn out, neurotic and suffer from stomach pain and arthritis. As to my health concerns, I refer to the accompanied certificate by the Reykjavik district doctor, dated the 11th of this month. In the Hegningarhuset prison, I am not able to be on the special diet I need, nor to live in the conditions I need for survival, and therefore the doctor has not seen it fit for me to stay there. And therefore the doctor has not seen it fit for me to stay there, but only for short at a time. I sincerely regret the crime I committed and have tried to show in all that I do that my regret is deep and true as the accompanying certificate of the cathedral minister, dated yesterday, shows. Yours sincerely, Juliana Selva Jonsdottir. Accompanied was the letter of the cathedral minister, Jón Thorkelson. The widow Juliana Jonsdottir, who was convicted of causing her brother's death, has for long been imprisoned in the Hegningarhuset prison here in Reykjavík, until she was transferred to a hospital due to her health. Her behavior seems to savor regret of her actions. I thereby reverently, if she is to be pardoned and capitulated of her sentence, advocate for that decision to be made and that she will be released from prison, which her health seems to not tolerate anymore. Cathedral Minister of the Reykjavik Paris, Jón Thorkelson. How do you like what you've heard so far? If you want to listen to upcoming episodes of Icelandic Crime and Mystery Cases, click subscribe to be notified of new episodes. That way, you will also support the Icelandic True Crimes podcast. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, so thank you for your support. Icelandic True Crimes is on Instagram and Facebook, and on the website icelandictruecrimes.com you can find additional information on this case in the show notes. Now let's continue with the show. On October 29th, Jón Magnusson, the former city sheriff and then prime minister of Iceland, sent a letter to the king of Denmark proposing Juliana's preconditioned pardon. The widow Juliana Silva Jónsdóttir was by the Supreme Court's ruling, pronounced February 17, 1915, sentenced to death under the 191st article of the Penal Code for taking her brother's life. But by a royal decree dated March 25 the same year, her death sentence was conditionally pardoned to be imprisoned for life and do prison work. This prisoner, who is now 54 years of age, has courteously applied for her punishment to be capitulated. 
from when the prisoner started taking out her punishment, she has not been able to be imprisoned at the Hackningarhuset prison due to her state of health, and now has for a long time been hospitalized and will not be able to do penal servitude, nor tolerate the prison food in the foreseeable future. The district doctor has handed in a very thorough certificate of the prisoner's health, which states that this woman suffers from three diseases. Chronic gastroenteritis, neurosis and arthritis. Certificates from trustworthy persons, including the cathedral minister, state that the prisoner's mental state of mind has taken a major change for the better and that her behavior shows she regrets her crime and the cathedral minister advocates for her being released from prison. The Reykjavik city sheriff, who is also the supervisor of the prison, also advocates for this, along with noting how expensive it is for the state to pay for her hospitalization, as the prisoner is dispossessed. For as much, providing the above mentioned, there is a little chance of the prisoner being transferred back to prison and further punishment, undoubtedly not for the better. It leaves me with reverently proposing this. That your majesty grants Juliana Silva Jonsdottir a capitulation of her sentence by the 16th article of the Ordinance from February 28, 1874, on these terms. That she conducts diligence and integrity. That she follows whatever the police administration imposes her and that she will again be deprived of freedom, without further judgment, if she does not comply to these conditions. Sincerely, Jon Magnusson On November 19th of that same year, the proposal of Jon the Prime Minister was agreed upon, and the same day, a telegram was sent from the Icelandic Embassy in Copenhagen, stating that Juliana's plea of pardon was approved by the King of Denmark, and was Juliana therefore fully pardoned. Six years after Eyjolfur's murder, and four years after Juliana had been sentenced to death, she was free. The death penalty was then abolished from the Icelandic law in 1928. Until then, death sentences had been customary since the year 1271. After Juliana's arrest in 1913, the couple Haukon and Guðrún who then lived on the floor above Juliana on Brekkustigur 14, had temporarily taken in her daughter Silva Brynhildur until she was found a permanent home. Silva Brynhildur was then only seven years old and had lived with her mother in Reykjavík for almost three years. She was later sent to her mother's sister, Hansina Lilja, in Stikkesolmur. When Hansina Lilja herself was 17 years old, Juliana and her then-husband Magnus had taken her in when they lived on the island at Lidae. Then, in 1903, Hansina and her husband Jón, Magnus's son, moved from Atledae to Stikkesolmur, the same time Juliana and Magnus also moved to Stikkesolmur. Juliana and Magnus moved into a house called Söðurhöfði, or South Cape. Later, that house was rebuilt and has since then been called Hnúkur, meaning Peak. The same year they moved to Stikkesolmur, Hansina and Jón got married and built their own house. That house was named after Jón and therefore called the house of Jón the Watchmaker, but then the name was changed to Birkilundur in 1922, meaning 
Birch Grove. When Magnus passed away in 1909, Juliana lived in Stikisolmur along with her daughters Margret and Silva Brenhildur for the next two years until the move to Reykjavik City in 1911. Jón had studied watchmaking and goldsmithery and was also very handy when it came to building boats and making spinning wheels. But in addition to being a watchmaker, he was also the harbor pilot of Stikisolmur, like his father used to, which meant that he would guide all ships coming into the Stikisolmur harbor. Being a harbor pilot is called Lóðs in Icelandic, and was Jón therefore nicknamed Jón Lóðs. That nickname also stuck to other members of his family, like his wife who was often referred to as Hansina Lóðs. That nickname carried a certain dignity and respect in their town. Jón was described as an elegant man, rather tall and somewhat stooping, skinny and scrawny. He was ruddy looking and freckled in his younger years and with strong facial features. When Silva Brynhildur was 11 years old in 1917, her cousin Magnus, the son of her sister Margret, was sent to Hansina and Jón who were his grandmother's sister and his mother's brother. Magnus got sent there after his parents Margret and Sigurbjörn divorced. In the same year, Olavia Guðrún Thorgrimsdóttir, the adoptive daughter of Eyjólfur, moved in with Hansina and Jón as a housemaid. She was then 27 and had been a laborer in Flate Island after she moved from Arnostadir where she had lived with Jón, the father of Juliana, Eyjólfur and Hansina, but he then died in 1908. Olavia lived with Hansina and Jón for the next two years, until she moved to Reykjavík. But in 1923, then 33 years old, she died at Lantakotspitali Hospital. She was buried in the Holavatlagarde Cemetery in an unmarked grave, but registered in church books. Hansina and Jón had a total of four children, and they also fostered numerous children along with Silva Brynhildur and Magnus. But in 1922, Silva moved away, then 16 years old, and Magnus moved that same year back to his mother Margret and his stepfather Edvald in Reykjavík, then 10 years old. Magnus later became a sailor, got married, and had seven children, in his old age, he worked as a janitor and for his whole life lived in Reykjavík. Silva Brenhildur later moved to Reykjavík, but I could not find out where she was in the meantime, but I suspect she had gone to Denmark, which was common then, and which the daughters of Hansina and Jón had also done by the same age. Silva Brenhildur married Paul Simon Brynjolver Bjarnason, then an apprentice, in 1928, and had a daughter with him the same year. They had three children in total. A year later, in 1923, Jón Lóðs died from acute pneumonia, then 65 years old. Hansina continued living in their house, and there she ran a guest house with a restaurant. After Jón's death, the house was named Hansina's house, or Hansinehus. She hired a man named Johan Boason to continue with Jón's watchmaking workshop until 1927 when it was discontinued. The same year, Hansina met Hannes Guðmundsson, 
who was 30 years younger than her, and they got married in 1928. Hannes was then 22 years old and Hansina 52. Hannes was described as tall and slim, clean-limbed and very kind-spirited. Together they ran a guesthouse, but Hannes mainly worked by the shipbuilding yard building boats. Hannes was a very neat person, which was especially true when it came to their house, which always looked freshly painted, and he kept everything tidy in the garden. Hansina ran the guesthouse like a true professional. She always had regular customers of the finer class from Reykjavik, either officials or artists, and others who came to trade in Stekisolmur. Hansina was of medium height, overweight, and dark-haired with brown eyes, and her movements slow and composed. She was said to be charismatic and radiating, leaving a permanent impact on those who met her. She was more unusual than other women at the time. She was colorful, sophisticated, entertaining, and attractive. The 30-year age difference between her and Hannes sparked some curiosity and gossiping among the townspeople, but though without diminishing their image in the local community. But then Hannes died in 1949, only 43 years old. Hansina then sold her house that year and moved to Reykjavik, where she lived thereafter. After Juliana had been fully pardoned of her sentence and then released from prison in 1919, she moved in with her daughter Margret. A few years before, Margret had met Edvald Janus Jonsson, and they got married on September 11th in 1920, close to a year after Juliana was released. Later, Juliana moved to Framnesvegur No. 4, a house then called Otgersbær, and is now house number six, and there she sensed sheep meat to make a living. Margaret and Edvald had a daughter on November 27, 1927, and named her Juliana Ingebjörg, after her grandmother, Juliana Silva. Next, Juliana moved to Selbúðir, close to where the Lazaret house stands at Aunanest number 11, and it was a traditional housing for the homeless. But then Juliana went to rent in a house that still stands on Halskata number 41B, called Storasel, and there she continued to sense sheep meat for sale. She lived there until she became very ill, and on June 15, 1931, Juliana Silva Jonsdóttir died at Landakotspitali, then 66 years old, and 12 years after she had been released from prison. That whole time she was rather sick, both of mind and body, from the past events. Juliana was buried on June 22nd of the same year, in plot labeled O in Holavatlakardur Cemetery, but her grave is though unmarked, and today the exact location of her grave is unknown. Jon Jonsson, who had been Juliana's partner at the time of Eyjolfur's murder, and whom Juliana alleged during the trials was her accessory of the crime, was released from custody on December 15, 1915, but then locked up at the mental hospital Klepper. There, Jon lived for the rest of his life until he died on July 3, 1931, only two and a half weeks after Juliana had passed away. It is uncertain where he was buried, 
since it was not registered in the church's register, but he was most likely buried in Hólavallagarður Cemetery, which was then the only cemetery in Reykjavík. For me personally, this journey of covering the case of Juliana and Eilver has been very instructive for me and is also very dear to me. It's been almost a year since I got the idea of starting this podcast, and I immediately started gathering information on various Icelandic crime and mystery cases. But soon, the case of these siblings captured my attention, and I have ever since done an extensive documentation on it. I am very pleased to feature this case as the first of many on the Icelandic True Crimes podcast, and to even do it in three parts, but also to have found unknown information on their lives, which has never before been published. I was also very happy this summer when I finally found photographs of Juliana, so I could see the face of the person I had learned so much about. I feel like I got to know Juliana and Eilver very well throughout this process, and I will surely miss working on this case. My opinion on this case is that Juliana should not have been the only one sentenced for the murder of her brother Eilver, and that Jón, her then-partner, should have been convicted of encouraging Juliana to commit the crime. To me, it's clear by all the data I've come across and the court documents that Jón did what Juliana always claimed during their trials. Encouraged her to murder Eilver to acquire his possessions, and thus Jón would benefit from Juliana inheriting her brother's possessions. Jón's testimony in the trial was often in great inconsistency with statements made by witnesses on this case, and he was also inconsistent with his own statements, like when he said he had known nothing of Juliana's intention to murder her brother, but then confessed that she had talked to him about doing it, and Jón then told her that she was to do it alone. He even admitted that she had asked him to buy the rat poison at the pharmacy, but that he had refused to do so and told her that he did not want to have anything to do with the act itself. He also refused to having threatened Eilver to kill him, and then later said he did threaten him. Therefore, I believe Jón encouraged Juliana to murder Eilver, then suggested how it should be done, and then left their home when she was to poison Eilver, just as Eilver himself had said before he died that Jón was Juliana's accomplice. Jón took advantage of his relationship with Juliana, and even her kindness when she had previously taken him into her and Hannes' home, her then-partner, when Jón was sick. And then Jón tried to have Hannes wave Juliana his house in Bergstadsreite, so Jón could live there with Juliana. During the trials, it also came into light in both Margrets and Hannes' testimonies, that Jón had mistreated Margret, Juliana's daughter, which Jón then refused. But as I have told you before, Jón was taken into the mental hospital Klepper after his release from custody, and there he was until his death. I don't know why he was put in there, but at that time, it was common to use Klepper as a kind of storage for those who were alcoholics which may have been the case with Jón. But most of Klepper's earlier documents are now lost. I will now end this case by saying that when Juliana was married to Magnus Einarsson 
and living in Atlida she was considered to be a woman of excellence and hard-working, and described as helpful, kind-hearted, and susceptible to those in need, and passionate, somewhat temperamental, sometimes cheeky, but outspoken. It must be that the death of her husband Magnus took a great toll on her, and from then on she never recovered. Now I close the brother murder case of Juliana and Eilver. Next week I will cover another Icelandic case, so click subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you don't miss out. I'm already working on more Icelandic crime and mystery cases to tell you about. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed delving into the brother murder case. If you liked this episode, please leave a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow Icelandic True Crimes on Instagram and Facebook. That way, you support my work and help others find the show. For links and other sources mentioned, visit icelandictruecrimes.com and tap show notes. You don't want to miss new episodes, so make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. It really does mean a lot to me. Until next time, see you in the Facebook discussion group.